Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs. Encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash grad admissions. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We live in a chatter-filled world. People will talk your ear off when you see them in person, and everyone is constantly sharing their thoughts online. But my guest would say that all this chatter may be hurting us more than we know, and it would be better to close our pie holes and sit on our typing fingers a lot more often than we do. His name is Dan Lyons, and he's the author of STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. Today on the show, Dan impacts how being quiet and speaking with greater intention can improve your life. We discuss why some people tend to overtalk more than others and the six types of overtalkers out there, from the blurter to the most extreme case, the talkaholic, for whom overtalking is practically an addiction. We then discuss not getting sucked into spouting off online, avoiding conversational narcissism, the argument for spending less time working on your personal brand and more time doing quality work, how silence is power, how the best way to deal with issues in a marriage may be by not talking about them, and more. After the show is over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash stop talking. All right, Dan Lyons, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So you got a new book out called STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in a World That Won't Stop Talking. And this is a book about over-talking and the problems of it. There's been a lot of research done about the downsides of not talking enough, right? Shyness, for example, and books about how to overcome shyness. But very little has been done about over-talking. Why do you think that is? What's going on there? Well, I think part of it is that people who are extremely shy or communicatively apprehensive really really struggle in life. And they also can be helped. You can actually work with them and practice and help them overcome some of that shyness. And there's been a lot of work in communication research about that. And oddly enough, the first research that I came across on overtalkers was done by the people who had done the most on very, very shy people. But I think part of it is that over-talking people are mostly just seen as annoying. You don't feel pity for them, or not pity, you don't, you don't want to help them, right? You don't feel bad for them. I think people who are very, very shy, you kind of want to help get them out of their shell. Yeah, and I think too, in the United States, we're, we're kind of, we're extroverted. We kind of value the people who are out there talking. And so we don't think there's as, as much of a problem with people who talk more as opposed to less. Yeah, one of the researchers who came up with this thing called the talkaholic scale, which I write about in the book, it's very interesting. She is extremely, extremely shy, like way, way, way out on that end of like really does not like to talk to strangers or people she doesn't know. And her husband was the exact opposite. He was like me, he was a complete talkaholic. But she made a point to me about our culture and how we value and reward people who can speak well. And this is something very interesting. She said, think about kindergarten. Like when I was in kindergarten, when you were two, they had show and tell. So from the very start of the earliest part of your life, you're rewarding kids for getting up, for being able to get up in front of other people and talk. 
And so you talk about one of the reasons why this doesn't get researched all that often is that the problem of overtalking is that yeah, people are just annoying. But you, d- you actually went deep into this. There's actually been research done by people trying to figure out what happens if you're an overtalker. So kind of give us a, a summary. Like what, what does the research say? What are the downsides of overtalking besides just being annoying? Well, sooner or later, if you're someone who talks too much, you're going to talk your way into trouble. Now, it may be that you offend someone, right? Or you hurt someone's feelings and maybe someone you really care about. But at the other end, you lose your job, right? Or you wreck a relationship with someone you care about and love. So the consequences of that lack of impulse control can be really extreme. And if they start happening over and over again, which was my case, you know, they start to add up and you start to go, oh, this is this is really a problem. This is really interfering with my life. Yeah, you talk about the interview, do surveys of people at work, and they'll talk about, like, what do you think about the overtalker? And they're just like, oh, it's super annoying. <laughs> and I do what I can just to avoid them as much as possible. Because I know if I start talking to them, it's just gonna, I'm going to be stuck for 15, 20 minutes. And it just, it just saps my productivity. Yeah, dude, that's that amazing study. It's from, I don't know, a couple of decades ago, but I actually tracked down the guy who did it in grad school, who had no idea that this study had been cited and downloaded so many times, which tells you how much it resonates. But yeah, he studied people in the in the workplace. You know, do you have someone in the workplace who annoys everybody by talking too much? And everybody had one, right? And yeah, the other interesting thing is at first, they're often seen as great and you like them and that guy really can tell a story and boy, they're so lively and funny. And then after a while, yeah, you start to want to escape them. You know, people will actually see you coming and turn and go the other direction, or they'll pretend their phone is ringing, or, oh God, I have to get this this, uh, text message or this email. Yeah, and people really start to resent them to the point where, here's another interesting thing. If you ask them early on, is that person intelligent? They'll say, yeah, highly intelligent. You ask them later about the same person, and their estimate of that person's intelligence has actually gone down. And there's a great story in there about a guy who's a very, you know, annoying overtalker who gets made a manager and put in charge of five people. And he's driving them all so nuts that they finally go to management and say, look, either you got to get rid of him or we're going to quit or something. And so management goes to this guy and says, hey, you know, you're a great guy. You have this problem. If you can't stop doing this, you can't be a manager anymore. Now you would think the guy would say, okay, I'll work on it. This guy literally chose the demotion. He said, I don't want to change who I am. I like who I am and actually hurt his own career willingly. Yeah, because he wanted to over talk. Yeah, he didn't want to give it up. And also to me, it was like, that's how strong, for some people, it's an addiction, right? It's, it really is, and, and it's hard to break an addiction, and people don't want to confront it. Yeah, and they'll actually wreck their own lives, which is also the definition of a talkaholic. A talkaholic is someone who's not just gregarious, not just maybe talks a little too much or blurts things out. A talkaholic is someone who knows that the thing they're about to say will hurt them and will say it anyway. And also, maybe we should be clear, by talking, it's not just talking, talking. It could be just any type of communication, be tweeting or texting or just really long, tons of emails. It's the same sort of thing. Over-communication, basically, is what it is. Yeah, actually, a lot of it is online now because a lot of how we communicate is. And I should say, you know, we're here in a podcast and we're talking about not talking, right? But the idea is not to never talk, but it's to to speak with intention. So to know why you're having a conversation. So we're having a good conversation where we're both going to take turns talking. We're talking about something important that we find interesting. And there was actually research that shows that kind of conversation literally makes people happier and even healthier. Like it makes your immune system better. You respond to good conversations. Small talk and chit chat, on the other hand, have the opposite effect. But yeah, if you're online tweeting a hundred times a day, that's it's it's weakening you. It's not it's not helping you. 
Okay, so the downsides, you annoy people, people want to avoid you, it could get in the way of work, you might end up saying something that could hurt your career, uh, offend somebody, could damage a relationship. When did you realize, I mean, this book is part kind of memoir here, you're trying to figure out the source of your over-talking. When did you learn that over-talking was a problem for you? Was there like a moment you're like, oh boy, I got to do something about this? It's really funny, there was, there was, there was one specific moment that I remember very clearly, but I had been building to it for a long time. But there was a moment when I was literally, I was texting with my agent, my book agent, about something else. And then we're kind of going back and forth about, about life. And I'm complaining about something and saying, well, this person did that and blah, blah, it was their fault. And then I just blurted out, you know, I can complain about all of that. But if I had never said X, this one sentence, then none of the rest of this could have ever happened, right? And so maybe I should need to learn how to STFU. And we both had this moment of like, you know, that's a, that could be a pretty good book. <laughs> and as I thought about it, I thought, you know, for the last few years, I've been, you know, getting worried before I go to a, a party or, you know, I have kids and they were little, you know, you go to the kid's birthday party with all the neighbors and I would be terrified before I went like, don't talk too much, don't talk too much, you know, and I'd get there and I'd get nervous or something and I'd, I'd just get going and I, you know, I didn't let anybody else have a chance to talk or I would say things that were, you know, I didn't read the room very well and they kind of offended people. And so I realized that this dread had been building, but it was that moment where I just blurted it out in a text and, and also in a text, you know, you're looking at it, right, in writing. And I thought, yeah, yeah, this is really a problem. That that's that's my problem right there. And I had thought of it always as kind of a good thing. Like I'm gregarious and I when I get in an Uber, I talk to the driver and I get their whole life story and I just love talking to people. I love meeting people, which is true. But, you know, too much of a good thing. And so there's yeah, there's a small group of researchers who are studying over talking and they develop this scale. This you actually you have it in the book. There's a test you can take to see your talkaholic level. So the people who study is they, they know why people are talkaholics. Is it socialization? Is it like you're just born with a genetic thing? What's going on there? Yeah, that's really interesting. For a long time, people thought it was just nurture versus nature. And the researchers who first devised that talkaholic scale couldn't figure out the why behind it. But one of their colleagues spent another 10, 20 years working on it from a biological perspective and found that it correlates with an imbalance in um, brainwave in the prefrontal cortex. And so if there's an imbalance between the right and left lobe, it makes you either more talkative or less talkative. Right side is more talkative. And the degree to which you're an overtalker or an undertalker corresponds to how far out the imbalance is between right and left. But there are also causes that uh, anxiety is a big one. And, you know, we live in a culture of anxiety. And it's actually some kinds of overtalking, like hyperverbal speech, are correlated with um, ADHD, for example. So there are people who are really, really, really overtalkative. They start working on ADHD, they maybe start taking meds, and they see that, that it's easier for them to control they're speaking. And, and then, yeah, then there's the, there is the, the nurture, which we just talked about. Our culture just rewards speaking and encourages. Look, social media practically makes you over talk, you know, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here because it's been covered and you probably have written and talked about it, but you know, social media apps are designed by design to make you engage, to get you engaged, to make you post and share and like and tweet rather than just read. And to do that, they know to, how to do that is to provoke you, and usually it's to make you angry and outraged. And so they intentionally are doing that. And they're using the same techniques that casinos use with slot machines, only this is you know, a kind of anger machine. They want to keep you at the machine, and they keep getting you angry. And that does terrible things for your health, and it gets you, it gets you blabbing. You know, Suddenly you realize you're on Twitter for hours, and you're you know, 
joining in every rant that goes on and you're dogpiling and you're doing all this stuff. And they think, if you step back and think about like, why am I doing, how did I become this person, right? And it's because you've been programmed by a machine. So there, 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 are, there are a range of reasons from your brainwaves to the culture we live in. Yeah, I'd like to dig in a little bit more on the social media aspect because I thought that was interesting. We won't beat the dead horse too much. But before we do, you, you also talk about they've categorized over-talkers into six different types. What are the six different types of over-talkers out there? So the first kind that I identify is called the ego-talker. And the ego-talker is almost always a guy And it's a certain kind of guy who, but not always, right? But who just thinks they're smarter than everyone else. They know more than everyone else. Maybe they've made more money than everybody else. It's it's a a thing that happens a lot to really rich Silicon Valley guys who then think they know everything about everything because they made money on Bitcoin, say. But And they just suck up the oxygen because they sort of think they deserve it, right? It's sort of narcissism and they, you know, the smartest guy in the room syndrome. They're sort of my least sympathetic type. I identify nervous talkers or people who are just um, more like situational overtalkers. They don't go through life annoying everybody, but in certain situations, they get nervous and they talk too much. I call one category blabbers, and those are people who just go on and on and on and on, and they often tell the same story many, many times. Like, you've heard the whole story, and you have to listen to it again, right? Then there are blurters who I think typically are very, very highly intelligent people and very, very quick-witted and have a funny remark very quickly, almost so fast that they don't, there's not enough time for the filter to come up. And they'll often blurt out things that are really funny, you know, but not to everyone. I have a friend who's a blurter and I think she's hilarious. Like every, every joke kills me, but you know, not everybody is in that same camp. I think there are ruminators who are people who just think out loud. Like they like to, they're just sort of thinking out loud. And then talkaholics who are in a different category in the sense that they're self-destructive. They have a propensity for self-destruction that is akin, say, to an alcoholic or any other kind of addict where there's the chance of this really, really harming yourself. So you mentioned social media. You you have a couple chapters dedicated to social media. I think we kind of hit on why social media encourages over-talking. It encourages over-sharing because that gets engagement, right? The the outrageous stuff. It encourages people to disclose extremely personal information because people love to see that. And so you see people say things or type things. You're like, man, probably shouldn't have said that, but, you know, it gets them engagement. Yeah. I mean, but like beyond the just oversharing aspect of social media, like what have been the down, like what, what has it done to us mentally, physically, spiritually? What, what have you seen? Well, in a very high level sense, I think the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen the emergence of a kind of mental illness at a societal scale that our entire culture has got a little bit crazy and it's happened in such a way that we don't even realize how crazy it is. It's not the sort of frog in the boiling water thing, but just that the way our brains have been rewired is such that it makes it very difficult for us to see how our brains have been rewired. So I had this thought experiment. I thought if I can go back to 2000 and imagine myself then and the world then, and then see the 2023 version of me and of the world, I think I would be kind of shocked and in some ways impressed by all the amazing things we can do, but then in in other ways being really distressed by the way we've cut ourselves off from each other in certain ways. We've become meaner. We've become angrier. You know, there was a time, and it might have been 10, 15 years ago, remember when people would say that, oh, people say things online that they would never say to your face. And now they say them to your face, right? That anger that began online has, you know, seeped back into the real world. And so you have statistics on incidents on airplanes, right? People getting rowdy on an airplane, getting physically violent, attacking a flight attendant. Those are up like 5X from a few years ago. Like it's it's not a subtle change. And you have, you know, we have this phenomenon of the videos of people going nuts and Karen videos, people going nuts in stores or whatever. And 
we have this polarization. We demonize each other. We're unable to have conversations across political divides, for example. Now, I don't think you can blame all of that on social media, but it all sort of happened in lockstep with the emergence of social media. Yes, and you also highlight research whenever we're engaging on you know, social media, these apps, our cortisol goes up. Yeah. And then depression can go up because I, I think there's some studies coming out too. We've actually confirmed that social media use, particularly for teenage girls, oh. is really terrible. Like they're pretty convinced that it's made teenage girls more depressed. Social media has. Oh yeah. There's a there's a professor at NYU named Jonathan Haight. I think that's how he pronounces it. And a professor at Stanford named Anna Lemke. Oh my God, the statistics, the numbers are insane. Jonathan Haight's numbers on teenage girls and maybe it's like suicidal ideation or suicide attempts or actual suicide and the rise of, say, Instagram. And you chart those two and it's terrifying. They go like right up. So he has no doubt that that's what's happening, that there is this terrible effect. And I mean, that's the worst end of it. But if you think, think of the rest of us, I mean, it creates anxiety, depression, you're right, cortisol. So we have this rush of cortisol in our system sort of all the time. And the interesting thing about cortisol is that, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, when you were a caveman and a saber-toothed tiger leapt out at you, you, you needed that burst to like go get going and run, right? But if you have a low level all the time, it's actually worse. It's like this chronic level of low-grade stress that just wrecks your brain. And I think the other danger of social media and just digital communication, why it encourages over talking, it, it's, it's so easy to do, right? So if you feel like spouting off to somebody, you can do it right away. If back before the internet or social media, if you wanted to talk to a friend, like you had to call them up and they might not be there or you'd have to arrange a conversation, you know, to get together and that there's a lot of friction there with digital communication. If you want to say something to anybody, you can get there in a, in a second. And I think oftentimes, you know, the things we say that we regret the most, it happens when we're feeling angry. So the anger is a really hot emotion and it makes you want to do something. And if people would just like let that, if there's like a, just like a little buffer zone between the anger and you spouting off, usually the anger just goes away and then you're like, I'm not going to say it. But with digital technology, you can just, I'm feeling it. I'm going to do it right now. And then you end up regretting it. And um, I don't know, you know, I, my whole business is online. So I get a lot of people talking back to me and you get like the trolls and people just like say snippy things to you. I usually ignore it, but every now and then I'll respond to an email where it's just like someone's just really angry and just like, just saying all this like crazy stuff. And I, I just respond like, Hey, I'm sorry feeling this way. I'm, but I'm really not understanding like the reaction that you're having here. It seems a little overblown. I don't say overblown. I try to be really diplomatic and they always respond like, Oh man, I'm really sorry. I had a bad day. I started drinking and I just, I sent out that missive and I really regret it. And I imagine wow. if, if if that guy had just like had a bit of buffer, if he had to just write me a letter, he would have been like, well, it's not worth it. It's dumb. I'm just gonna move on with my life. But that's amazing that the way you handle it works because I, I wouldn't have thought of that. But when you tell me, it makes absolute sense. But like, is it because when you don't respond with anger, in other words, you if you had gone back at him like blah, 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 right, that yeah. just... Escalate. It's going to escalate. Right? It's going to escalate. But somehow, like, you're taking that energy that he's pushing toward you and what, like, absorbing it? Yeah. Whenever people blow off, you know, say something, I'm just like, they probably had a bad day. There's something going on. <laughs> and so I'm not going to respond to that. It's like, I mean, it's, I don't want to be patronized, but it's, it's like kids. Like, if you have a kid who's having a meltdown, yeah, you know, you can't take it personally. They're just, they're hungry. They're tired adults, we're still like, we're still kind of kids. We get hungry, we get tired, we get stressed out. We do and say stupid things. But I think if you slow things, that's the problem with the internet. Like it's too fast. If you can just slow things down a little bit, I think it would solve a lot of the problems. So the thing where you say, I'm, you write that angry email, then you go, uh, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till tomorrow. If I still feel this way, right, I'll send it, but not, not right now. I can't tell you how many times in the last year, I've done it with text messages where I start to write something and then I look at it, the whole thing, I go zip and I hit, you know, delete and go backwards through all the letters, just gobbling them all up like, nope, not going to do that. And yeah. same with email. And I have developed better discipline about it. And, I, and you're right. I think I've saved myself trouble 
Because I sometimes say to myself, okay, I could, you know, someone zings you like the guy did to you and you're probably really good at it, right? Like, you know, like, dude, this is what I do for a living. Like I can zing you back way better, right? It's like dealing with a heckler. But you know, if you do, then then he's coming back with more. So like, does that help you? Now you've had, now you're gonna have to listen to two of his emails, right? Yeah. I sometimes think of it as I'm saving myself, you know, all the anxiety of the minute I hit send, I'm sitting there waiting for the angry thing to come back, right? Right, and that's true to extent to all communication, right? The more you send out, the more you get back. And it turns into this like, you know, vicious time suck cycle. Okay, so you give advice on quieting yourself on social media, you know, reducing how much you talk there. So, you know, get rid of Twitter, just view Instagram in the, the browser instead of the app, text less. I mean, there's all sorts of tactics that I think are good ones to reduce how much you spend on social media. And not only will it help you reduce your over-talking online, but you say that over-talking online carries over to over-talking offline. So curbing your online chatter can maybe help you break that habit of always having to give your two cents offline too. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents 
to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. So you have a chapter on interrupting over talking where you interrupt people a lot. Did you have that issue of interrupting? Oh, yeah. Yeah. and often wasn't even aware of it. But yeah, I had that problem. And I tend now to try to go into a conversation or, you know, like this or a work conversation and prepare myself before it. Just, you know, take a minute or just to kind of take some deep breaths, but also think, okay, don't interrupt. I also put little stickers, uh, little yellow pads above my desk to say things like quiet, listen, wrap it up. But, you know, some interruptions are not, not at all bad. It's just that you get a little excited, like you're talking, you know, we have like a mind meld and you're saying something and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I jump in and I really just want to sort of agree with you. Those are the hardest ones for me to avoid where they're, it's, you know, genuine enthusiasm rather than, you know, rudeness. But yeah, I just try to be proactively aware of that and also try to catch myself. If I do start to interrupt, because here's the other one, you're talking to someone and they take a breath, but they're not finished speaking and you leap in and then they start to talk. You know, you know the thing where you're both talking at the same time and then you both go, oh no, no, you go. Oh no, no, you go. So I try to you know, catch those and really sit back and say, no, 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 really, you were saying something interesting. You know, I'd like to hear more of it, but yeah, I think it's just being aware. Yeah. And yeah. on the chapter on interruption, it reminded me, we wrote an article a really long time ago about this idea of conversational narcissism. Mm. Have you heard of this? No. This is really interesting. So there's a sociologist, Charles Derber, he wrote this book called The Pursuit of Attention. And he found that despite good intentions and often without being aware of it, most people struggle with conversational narcissism. And it's basically when you're in a conversation, there will be someone who will subtly shift the conversation to them. So there's this thing called a shift response. So it's like this. Dan says, hey, I'm thinking about buying a new car. A shift response would be like, I would say, oh, yeah? I'm thinking about buying a new car too. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, really? And then I'm like, yeah, I just just drove a Mustang yesterday. It was awesome. So you started off. If I wasn't a narcissist, a conversational narcissist, I would have been like, oh, Dan, what kind of car are you looking at? But I just immediately I turned it to myself. Yeah, I didn't know those terms, but I, I was just talking about this yesterday to someone. I mean, the, the example I was using was someone says, and I do this I, a lot, you know, I, I hope less than I used to, but you say, oh, you know, we, we're just planning a vacation where we're going to go to Italy. And, you know, the good response would be, oh, hey, Brett, like, where are you going? And when are you going? And, oh, we're going to say, have you been there before? And blah, blah, blah. But yeah, the one I do is like, oh, we went to Italy once. We went right. here and we did that. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, how awful is that? Yeah. Yeah. So yes, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of a, a subtle interruption, right? I didn't interrupt you. I didn't like say, hold the horses. I'm going to talk about it. But it was like subtly, like, okay, I'm going to take control of this conversation now. But do you think people are doing it out of a bad reason? Like, is Gerber's argument that this is like, obviously it's a problem because it, it's not nice, but is it, is it um, motivated by a bad thing or just motivated by carelessness? I think it's carelessness. And he's basically saying that people are just starved for attention. Like people want attention, but they're looking for it in an unhealthy way. Yeah. I think it's the argument he's making. I think it's going along with a lot of social media. Like people just, they want to be noticed um, and they might not be getting that you know, because they don't, like a lot of us, that we don't belong to, I think the, the statistics say a third of people are living alone now in America, adults, that is. Like we don't go to church anymore. Like we don't belong to the Rotary Club. 
And so we, I think a lot of us crave, like, we just want someone to notice us. Like, hey, I, I matter. And I think maybe we do that in a conversation. It's like, oh, here's someone, here's a chance for me to get attention. I think this is, again, I'm just, this is me just doing my Freudian, uh, like, <laughs> theorizing. But I think people, like, that's a way for them to get some attention that they might need. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I, I agree. And, you know, that's an idea that someone else picked up. Her, her name is Sherry Turkle at MIT. And she wrote a book called Alone Together. And was putting some of this on social media, saying that, yeah, we're we're together online, but we're sort of cut off from each other in personal life. And I think there's some research that shows, you know, using a lot of social media actually interferes with your in-person relationships. But, but I hadn't thought of that, what you just said about church and the Rotary Club. And yeah, that must have been a real kind of social glue. Right, you went out on Tuesday night because you had your Rotary Club meeting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't do that. You don't do that. Mm. Okay. So be aware of interruption. Don't do it. Try not to do it. You also have a chapter about you know shutting your mouth at work, which goes against most of the career advice you see out there, because most of the career advice you see out there is about building your personal brand yeah. by constantly creating content and sharing your thoughts on social media. And I, I I always read that stuff and I'm like, does that actually do anything? Does like you posting a LinkedIn thing, is that gonna help you move ahead in your career? Like what is what did you find? Is it doing anything? Yeah, I you know, I sometimes worry that I seem too much like a curmudgeon and that there is some value in building your brand or establishing yourself as an expert in a field, right? Someone that uh, has something to say. But I do think that, yeah, we, we spend too much time doing that. And we've been sold this idea of, yeah, building the brand of you. And, and I think, you know, what if the brand of me is just that I'm really good at what I do and I'm quietly competent and I get my stuff in on time and I, I get stuff done, you know, can that be the brand of me? And I think, like, for example, I had a guy tell me that he measures people's value by how much, how many Twitter followers they have. And I thought, well, that's, you know, because you can gin that number up. You can go out and buy followers or you can you can get a lot of Twitter followers just by posting a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and you'll build your number count. But does it does it make you does it make you really more important, more intelligent, more insightful? I don't know. But the other thing is like it's a real tight wire. There's a journalist at the Wall Street Journal who said once that, you know, journalists are almost all on Twitter, less so now, but and he would never get on and people, he'd say, because you're always 140 characters away from losing your job. Like, I'm just not going there. I do my job. I write for the Wall Street Journal. That's where my work goes and I don't need it to go anywhere else. But yeah, I think people are afraid that if they're not on social media, they become invisible and they don't, they don't exist or they don't have value. But I don't think it's true. No. And I, I think it's interesting. So I, th I think I read an article about this a couple of years ago. So back in the early 2000s and then like a social media got bigger when publishers or when editors were trying to figure out which authors or manuscripts to accept, they started looking at your social media following. They wanted to make sure you had a strong social media following because like the idea is, well, if they got a big, so they already have an audience, right? These are customers. So if they, yeah. we're going to pick authors. And then I think there was an article, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, um, came out and basically that, that it's not true. People have a huge, ginormous social media following, but it doesn't translate to sales. Yeah. I didn't know that study, but that makes absolute sense. But they do still look for that. You know, if you're yeah. selling a book, they'll, if you have, I don't know, a million Instagram followers, that, that actually does still, you know, get their attention. And people, I think, still do sell books based on their social media following. And, and conversely, if you're like me and you're selling a book and you say, well, you know, I don't really have, I have a small number of followers everywhere. But yeah, I think it makes them think, well, you're less, you're less of a sure bet, right? But yeah, I don't think, uh, put it this way, I had a blog in the 2000s called the Fake Steve Jobs blog, and I had one and a half million monthly readers. And I, I sold a book, and I think partly they were like, well, this guy's, look at all those readers. But I was like, yeah, there are people who will read stuff for free on a blog. Right. They're not people who are going to go buy a book, even, you know, and I would use the blog, go buy my book, you know, but yeah, it didn't convert. 
No. So yeah, a lot of people like companies or even entrepreneurs, they spend a lot of time on that social media stuff when they, maybe they should be spending more time just being confident, like the actual thing that they're, they're selling. Right. Well, like you have a huge audience, right? But you built it up over time, I'd imagine, but you probably, you probably didn't build it up by just selling the hell out of it on Twitter. You built it up by creating good content. Like the content, the product is what sells itself, right? I don't think you can flog your way into success, you know, through hype. No, I mean, maybe in the short term, in the long run, maybe not. And we have, so I guess again, I I don't want people to think we're both curmudgeons. We're like, oh, social media. We're all cranks. Yeah. We we use social media. Like Artemans has a Twitter account. We've got a Facebook page. We have an Instagram account. We have a LinkedIn account. But I'm not particularly active there. We just use it to broadcast our content. Instagram, like we post once a week. That's it. Facebook, you're going to get two posts a day. And then Twitter, I just automate that. I just, I use Buffer and I just like throw in, you know, links for the month and it just spits it out. Like, here's this article. Here's a link. Read the thing. And that's it. Like, I, I there was a time where I was like, I gonna, I'm going to be really interactive and it was exhausting and I didn't see much. I didn't see much from it. Is that and right? I, like, I, yeah. Yeah. Like, there was like a period every now and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to be really active and I'm going to, and, and it's, you just, you spent, it's like, it's, it really is, a t- it takes a lot of time. It's tiring. And then it's at the end, you're like, well, that didn't really move the needle much. I'm going to go spend some more time getting ready for a, a great podcast or writing a great article. Yeah. So I was going to say, what did move the needle? Yeah. Just like putting just good content, spending time on the content. Yeah. And some of it, I guess, I think is persistence too. Like you can't write an article on your blog and then six weeks later you write another one. There's no cadence, no, right? There's no, no that, but I feel that way with movies, you'll see movies that they advertise really, really heavily. But if the movie comes out and the movie itself doesn't deliver, you know, no amount of ads are really going to, you know, move the needle. And then like the way I discover shows, I don't know if you do this. I, you know, I binge watch shows and it's usually, I have to hear it, I don't know, a bunch of times from different people. Like White Lotus was one. I kept sort of hearing it, sort of hearing it. Finally, I was like, I, I better take a, I'm going to take a look at this because so many people I've heard say it was good, but it, it, it took me a while, but it was word of mouth. It wasn't, I saw a bunch of ads for that show. You know what I mean? I heard from people who had watched the show and liked it. Yeah. No. Yeah, word of yeah. mouth is definitely the, the most powerful. And then the other way, shutting up can help you move forward in your career. So the idea is, instead of spending so much time, like we're not saying don't do it, like maybe do the LinkedIn thing every now and then, but spend more time just being really competent at what you do, that quiet competence. But another way shutting up can get you ahead in your work is it can help in negotiations. I think it makes everyone uncomfortable, you know, salary negotiation. So what you'd end up doing is you start talking, 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 and then you basically agree to a not great package. Um, and if you just shut up, like the other party is going to start getting nervous and they're going to start talking and talking and talking and talking. And then you're going to walk away with something pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I interviewed a bunch of people who do negotiation and talked about it. And, I, and that's, I think it's pretty well known for car salesmen have done this forever. You know, they hand you the deal and then they stop and just say nothing. And they just, you're sitting there and you kind of go, and you don't really want to, you're nervous. So if you can use it back on them, it usually kind of blows their mind. But it's it's part of a larger point though, which this kind of struck me, which is that like silence is power and you can use silence as a weapon and, and really smart people or powerful people often do this. They say less than they need to and they hold back instead of speaking more. So yeah, in negotiation, it's a really, really powerful tool for like salaries or, or closing a deal. Yeah, and sometimes it's extreme silence. You can go on for minutes, and most of us just find that unbearable. Yeah, that's a, I think there's been a lot of studies about that. Uh, people who are in positions of power speak less. Well, that's what struck me in the very beginning of this whole journey was I... And I was thinking about over-talking, and I talk too much. And then I thought, oh, we live in this noisy age, and everybody's seeking attention. Then I thought, well, wait a minute, but look at, like, really, really powerful people. For the most part, you know, they're not out selling too hard. Like, I was, uh, I was a huge fan of Steve Jobs, and I admired him in many ways. 
you know, in person at work, he was a shouter, kind of a screamer. He was a very passionate guy. But the way he managed himself in public was that he was super reclusive, very secretive. When he spoke, it was because he knew why he was speaking, usually had something to sell. And he chose every word really carefully. But, and I was a journalist, and he was one of the gets you always wanted to get. Like if you could get Steve Jobs on the cover of your magazine, first of all, you knew you were going to sell a lot of magazines. And you wanted him to talk to you because he never talked to anyone, you know? And the more he said no, the more you wanted to get him as a, a guest. And I can tell you, having been a, you know, a business journalist, you'd be surprised at the kind of CEOs who are big CEOs who have PR people out, you know, trying to get their boss on the cover of Forbes or Fortune. And Jobs was the complete opposite. But, but other people, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, Anna Wintour, Barack Obama, you look around and you go, wow, these are people who always really held back. And that's their power. So another way that shutting up can make our lives better, it can help our, our relationships, our marriage. But that goes counter to a lot of like the common advice. I mean, when couples have a problem, the common advice is, well, you just need to talk more. And often that talking is facilitated by a therapist. But you share an experience from your own marriage where you and your wife decided to talk less and it actually saved your marriage. What went on there? Yeah, this still amazes me, even though it happened to me. And it's, (laughs) you know, we had separated and it wasn't just because I was such an annoying talker, but, you know, whatever, various things. And, but not because one of us wanted to marry someone else, right? It was just, we just had trouble dealing with each other. And we had gone to a lot of, you know, talk therapy, say, and one after another, after another, until we got to the final one who was just, just said, you know what, my advice to you is, is break up, like, forget about it. And so we did. And, but I don't think either of us really, really wanted to get divorced, you know? And this was just also when I started writing this book and researching the book and looking at silence, and looking at all these different things. And I started reaching out to my wife and saying, you know, um, can we go walk the dog? We have a dog that likes to go out in the woods and swim. And we would go, and I would just prepare myself and just not talk, or talk a little bit, mostly ask questions, and really sit. You know, we're talking about how silence is uncomfortable, but just sit in silence. And I ended up calling this non-talk therapy, that it somehow allowed us to come back together in a way where we didn't relitigate the old fights or the old differences. We didn't, we didn't go back at all to any of that. And we just kind of spent time together. And I, yeah, I thought of it as sort of non-talk therapy. And it worked for us in a way that all that talk therapy hadn't worked. And we ended up getting back together and it's gone really well. And I think a huge amount of it, maybe the most important thing is my ability to hold back and to not respond quickly with something, you know, mean, but just, just to allow silence to exist in the relationship. I I think it's, I've come to believe that it's enormously powerful in an interpersonal relationship. Well, you highlight research. So it's like nearly half of married couples go to couples counseling, but it's like 25% of couples who go to therapy end up worse than they were before. And there's actually a psychologist, William Doherty. He wrote an article, how therapy can be hazardous for your marital health. And I think the point he was making, like one of the problems with couples counseling is that it can reinforce stuff that's going outside the marriage, inside the marriage, like in the therapy session. So basically it's just couples are just kvetching about each other inside the therapy session. And it's, that's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's true. You go in and you know, you're okay. It's like your Wednesday night, you go to your, you know, your meeting, you drive over together and you go in and you walk out like, ah, hating each other. You get in the car and now you're all mad. I mean, that happened. That happened a lot. At Darty's point is that, yeah, people often end up worse after couples therapy. 
And yeah, partly it's because you know you go in and you just reopen all this stuff, and you know maybe maybe you don't need to. Darty's point is that a lot of therapists who do couples therapy are not trained specifically to do couples therapy, and mm-hmm. that couples therapy is a unique thing, and it's very different, and it's really hard. And so people will hang out a shingle to do it, and they're not really qualified to do it. I think his analogy was like, you know, uh, you have a broken leg and you go to a brain surgeon or something, uh, you know, or something like that. But there's another idea. This one really intrigued me. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg had this great line that she said her mother-in-law told her this on her wedding day. And she had lived by this rule her entire life, which is that to have a happy marriage, sometimes it helps to be a little deaf. And I was like, wow, that's that's amazing, right? Because you can sort of unpack that, so to speak. And what does she really mean? And he's like, well, she even says in her biography, so, you know, an unkind word is said, just leave it alone. Just like you said, that guy had a bad day. Just don't fire back. Just be deaf to that. And then it occurred to me that, you know, we have this idea, and it may be true, but that you have to learn how to fight. If you're a couple, you need to learn how to have a fight. And RBG seem to be saying, no, you need to just avoid having fights, like sidestep that fight, get around it. Now, I suppose if someone's really awful all the time, you end up having to break up. But I just thought that was such like an amazing little piece of wisdom. And and my wife and I have both really, really tried to do that. And it's, it's, it's again, been amazingly helpful. Yeah. And I think the advice that couples often get is you got to work on your communication style. Like you got to, instead of making you statements, you got to make I statements. But I don't know how helpful that is. You know, what you're saying about, you know, talking less in your marriage reminded me of research from Dr. John Gottman, right? He's like that famous marriage researcher. And he's found that couples can be, you know, really bad at communication and really bad at conflict resolution, but they can still have happy marriages. And he's found that really the key is just to have more positive interactions than negative interactions. I think the ratio is like, you know, five positive interactions to one negative interaction. And what this does, I mean, you can start thinking, when you take this idea, you can start thinking of your relationship as a bank account, right? As long as you put a lot of positive deposits in there, you know, just by enjoying each other, having fun, having good conversations when you're not fighting or arguing, then when you do argue, which is like, it's like making a withdrawal from the account, it's not a big deal because you have that surplus in the account, you know, that buffer. So the important thing isn't how you talk when you argue, but what you're doing the rest of the time. So if you have that, you know, flush relationship bank account, when you do argue, there's no stakes, right? It's not fraught. It's not like, you know, what does this mean for a relationship? You know, the, the arguments can just dissolve quickly and you can just avoid arguments uh, in the first place because most are just about the dumbest stuff, right? Like the, the dumbest stuff. And it's really, it, a lot of it's just not even worth talking about. Yeah, you know what we've become good at is we veer, we step right close to the line where maybe someone's about to, you know, and we've become very good at kind of going, oh, by the way, when is that thing? Is that Tuesday? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, you know, I need to take the car. We just we just change the subject. Or we'll even sometimes get up and be like, oh, you know what? I got to go do something. I'm going to go to the other room. Like, we'll just walk away from it. Like, you got close to that line. And I think we both, we never say it. We just both realize, ooh, and to walk away. Because I also think, and I, I, you know, you might feel this way too. Like you said, most of the stuff you fight over, it's like rubbish. Who cares? Like really, really, who cares? Like I'll tell you one thing that drives me crazy. My wife needs to leave all sorts of stuff out in the kitchen counter, like the mixer and all this. Like, And I like everything clean and empty. And I find that one probably is like, who cares? I don't know. Who cares? Yeah. Right? Am I going to have a fight about this? Yeah. So all this, we're going to focus on talking less but you're also encouraging people to listen more. What sort of research back tips that you came across writing this book can help people be better listeners? Well, there's a lot of exercises you can do. There's a, an organization called the International Listening Association, which is amazing. And the, the head of that organization and I have become quite good friends. But 
you know, sort of exercise you can do. You go have a conversation with someone and you let them talk for five minutes. You don't speak. And then you do the same. And then afterwards you talk about what you remembered from the other person's conversation. Yet listening just turns out to be like this amazing superpower in every aspect of your life, with your kids and at work. And yet it's really, really hard to do. Incredibly hard to be a good listener. So I took like online courses. I found exercises, you know, interviewed experts. But yeah, in the book, I have a a list of exercises that I gathered up from various sources. Like here's something you can do to, to work on your listening skills. Yeah. And as you said, it's cognitively taxing. So if you feel like, man, that's, I'm, I, that was, that whooped me. You're doing it right. Listening isn't easy. Yeah. That's a great line from Tom Peters, who's this famous business guru. Yeah. He says, if you get to the end of a 30 minute conversation and you're not exhausted, then you didn't listen enough. But then I think, well, how do, how do you have five of those in a day? Right. Yeah, but, right. but, but yeah, it's really hard. But that was one thing for me. Like if I could stop just talking for the sake of talking, it opens up in this space in your life where you can listen. And what I've found is when people are listened to, they really, they really open up. They really dazzle. You know, they become really fascinating and interesting. So that was the ultimate thing for me in this book was it not that like, what can I get out of talking less? Like, oh, I can get a better deal on my car if I'm silent. What you realize is, oh man, I can make my wife's life really better. I can make my daughter's life really better. And then that's the biggest gift you can give to the world, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I think so. Mm. People, people want to feel noticed. People want to feel like they're important. You know, there's, there's a story about, this is one I just love this anecdote, but Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny Jerome, had, she described the experience of having dinner with two different big shot British politicians. And one was William Gladstone and the other was Benjamin Disraeli. And the great quote was, when I left dinner with Gladstone, I left thinking he was the cleverest man in England. And when I left dinner with Disraeli, I left feeling like I was the cleverest woman, right. you know? And you yeah. think, wow, would it be great if like, if you could make everybody you talk to feel that way, you know? Wow, that would be, what a, what a powerful gift that would be. It all starts off with just shutting up. That's the first step. <laughs> yeah, that's where it all starts, right? That's where it all starts. Yeah. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Uh, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Oh, well, my website is danlyons.io. And yeah, there's information there. That's probably the best place to go. Fantastic. Well, Dan Lyons, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it was great meeting you. Thank you so much. My guest today is Dan Lyons. He's the author of the book, STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, danlines.io. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash stop talking, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. It's 
time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.